The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two Siege Fall. Chapter Seven Temperamental Saviors. The line isn't too long, Margaret said. At least we won't be out in the road. Are you sure this is what they said, Dad? asked Dustin. Martin's mind was still trying to run out the ramifications of what they heard on Walter's radio the night before. The world seemed changed, yet his world looked exactly the same as it did yesterday. Until last night, the biggest problem was how to stretch limited supplies. Random beggars, and maybe some clueless squatters. Would such force be applied in Cheshire? Did Cheshire have anything that the powers it be would want badly enough to take by force? Would the people of Cheshire be as determined, unto death, to refuse like those workers in Ohio? Would Martin be that determined? None of the other people approaching the line appeared to be armed. Everyone looked like the average folks they were. Perhaps they all had arms hidden, like Martin did. Dad, is this it? Dustin repeated. Huh? We're just supposed to stand around outside in the cold and hope a truck comes by? All they said was that a truck would come to your town center, replied Martin. The general store sits at the intersection in town. That seems to be about as center as it gets. Looks like it's not just me. All these other people thought so, too. Maybe it'll turn out to be a bust, or maybe we'll get something. It's worth a try. Martin and Margaret, followed by Dustin and Judy, took their place in the ragged line of people in the parking lot of the general store. It was more of a dotted line. Most of them had formed into conversational clusters. All were bundled up against the cold. Most of their faces looked concerned or worried or just uncomfortable. Hey, there's Walter and Sally up ahead in line there, Martin pointed. I want to go ask if he heard any more news about that Ohio thing. I'll be right back. Uh, hi, Walter. Uh, hi, Sally. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Sally was too engaged in conversation with another woman to even notice Martin. Ah, no problem, Martin, said Walter. We're all done here. Just chewing it around some more. Thanks, Frank. The man Walter had been talking to turned and chatted with another man behind him. Oh, uh, thanks. I, I was wondering if you heard anything more about that thing in Ohio last night. It kind of has me spooked that the feds would send the army up here or something. I got a bit more from Joyce after our noon check-in, Walter said. Details are still sketchy, but it doesn't seem like they'll be coming up here. Sounds like that thing in Ohio had upset just about everyone. Unofficial toll is three soldiers dead, nineteen wounded. No numbers on the folks inside the compound. They're all still holed up in there. Army pulled way back. It's kind of a siege sort of thing, but no more shooting. Word out of D.C. is that the president blew a gasket and ordered airstrikes, but the Air Force refused. Army air units refused, too. There's some rumor of some military types are holding a meeting today. It could just be a rumor. Folks all around are mighty nervous this morning. And some tough talk coming out of the governor of Ohio about not letting the feds strip his state bare just to feed East Coast cities. Sounds like some other Midwest governors are siding with him. Things are sounding pretty tense out there, Martin. Pretty tense. If you ask me, there's a bigger pot of brewing. Kind of doubt dinky little old Cheshire's gonna get much notice. 
Well, I guess being insignificant has some advantages. Still, the prospect of the feds using the army as muscle is kind of intimidating. Is that why people look so glum here today? Yeah, it could just be they're cold and worried about getting by. I've been sharing the news. I'll admit it hasn't cheered anybody up. The Colifs, yeah, way back there, they're worried about their grandkids out in Texas. Ours are down in Florida. They seem to be doing okay. At least they're not cold. What about that uh, girl of yours, Susan? Her folks are out in Ohio, right? Martin coughed. <coughs> uh, you know, Susan isn't a girl of mine. She's just someone who... Martin stopped himself. None of the words he thought to use were going to sound any better. A change of approach seemed like a better plan. Uh, actually, that's my wife back there, in the long black coat. See her? Right beside Dustin and Judy? That's Margaret, my wife. Martin hoped that that had settled the issue. Oh, Walter's face was twisted with confusion. Oh, what happened to Susan? Well, nothing. That's her coming up the hill back there. See her? Helping that old lady in white? That's Ruby. She's also staying with us on account of the outage and all. So you've got, uh, Susan and Margaret living in the same house with you? The confusion wasn't going away. How does that work? Martin heaved a heavy sigh, as if it might clear the cobwebs. Never mind. Susan is just a guest. My wife, Margaret, and I... Oh, that reminds me. Margaret gave me a message to give you for your next check-in with Joyce. Martin fished in his pockets for a scrap of paper. Ah, here it is. Walter uncrinkled the note. To Lindsay, Excalibur, Wisconsin. Congrats and buckets. He looked up at Martin. If it's not too personal or anything, uh, what's all that thing with the buckets all about? Uh, it's just a familyism. Lindsay started it back in high school. So much love you'd need a bucket, she used to say. That became buckets of love, and then finally just buckets. Seemed like a good family code word for us. Ah, Walter nodded and kept reading. Congrats and buckets. D and J with us. More too. We're okay. Well, sir, I'll get that one sent at the next check-in, assuming we ever get home. We've been standing out here for over an hour, and it still ain't even three o'clock. Well, I'd better get back to Margaret, Martin emphasized her name. If I don't see you before Monday morning, you take care of yourself, Walter nodded. What did he say, Dad? Yeah, it doesn't sound good. Sounds like the workers are still in the warehouse and the army pulled back. Lots of hot words flying between D.C. and the governors out there. Well, cool. Well, sort of. I mean, I was kind of rooting for the guys in the warehouse. I'm glad they didn't lose. I'm not sure if it's good news that they're still in there or not. That's got to be really tough. Yeah, indeed. Kind of makes it hard to complain about only having to stand in line, in the cold, for a couple hours. Working his way up the line was Jeff Landers. He was chatting lightly with people he knew well and shaking the hands or waving to those he didn't. He was acting overly cheerful, perhaps trying to lighten the mood of his town's residents, either against the gloomy news out of Ohio or just against the cold and gray. Ah, Simmons, Landers said enthusiastically as he shook Martin's hand. Glad to see you could make it. Quite the line already, eh? No idea what our generous Mr. Quinn will have in his truck. Hopefully it's not just some snake-bite kits. 
Landers laughed a hollow theatrical laugh. It must have been a line that he'd used too many times to find sincerely funny, but also too good to not use. I'm curious, too, said Martin. He squared his shoulders. This was his opportunity to set the record straight. Um, Landers, uh, Jeff, I'd like to introduce you to my wife, Margaret. Landers had started to turn away to shake the next set of hands, so he had to turn back. He extended his hand to Margaret, but stopped and stared at her. This is your wife? But I thought... He recovered his social composure with a couple of blinks. Oh, uh, glad to meet you, Mrs. Simmons. He shook her hand a bit too vigorously. We really loved your jam. Excellent work, excellent. Well, I got more people to greet. See you all later. Hang in there. Why did you say it like such a question? This is your wife? Margaret asked. Her voice had that, do we have a problem here, tone to it. Martin squirmed. He had felt chilled by the cool gray day. That is, until that moment. He pulled at his collar. He and Susan had been at the last two meetings. Did he and Susan look like a couple? That was mere coincidence. Couldn't they simply be neighbors or friends? He didn't want Margaret to think he was having some fling with Susan. She didn't need the extra aggravation at a time like this. He had never given her any cause to be angry or jealous in the past. In the midst of a crisis was a bad time to allow strife at home. There was no fling. He prided himself on having successfully locked the door years ago. Yet to deny out loud is to simultaneously create the category being denied. To say, I did not break your window, automatically creates a broken window in people's minds. The fact that I did not break your window could also mean that the window isn't broken just doesn't seem to occur to people first. That was a conundrum he didn't want to tackle while standing in the cold, with his son and dozens of other people around. Uh, I'm not sure, Martin said. At the meeting, Landers was saying how he had never met you, but heard about your homemade jam from Lance and Meary. He held a broad smile. He probably just had a different mental picture of you, is all. Uh, you know how people do that, uh, right? Uh-huh. She didn't sound convinced. Hey, shouted a man, standing near the intersection. He pointed to the north. I see someone coming. I think it might be the truck. All eyes turned to look north, even though the crest of Town Hill obscured the view for the lower half of the highway. The dozens of conversations buzzed up in volume briefly before quieting away. If people couldn't see the truck approach, they wanted to hear it, at least. Emerging over the crest, looking like a slowly breaching whale, rose a black escalade. It was followed by a white whale, a suburban. Laboring up the hill unseen, with deep diesel growls, was the long-awaited semi. The black Escalade pulled into the store parking lot. People in line had to hurry out of its way and then reform into a line. The white Suburban stopped across the road. Jack Quinn stepped out of the Escalade. He waved to the crowd as if expecting cheers. No one knew they were supposed to cheer. A few feeble good morning calls did squeak out. Giving up on adulation, Quinn strode to the center of the intersection. With ground crew arm gestures, he signaled for the approaching semi. If the Escalade resembled a breaching whale, the white freight liner was Atlantis rising from the deep in a cloud of black smoke. 
Quinn signaled for the truck to pull onto the side of the highway, near the store. Several men in black got out of the Suburban. Each wore tactical vests and curious little helmets. They busied themselves clipping AR-15s to monopoint slings. The people in line began pointing the men out to whoever had not yet noticed. They seem better armed than last time, Martin said. I wonder if the news from Ohio has them freaked out, Dustin said. They came prepared for trouble. Do you think there'll be any? Margaret whispered. Hard to say. Hope not. Martin fingered the little revolver in his pocket. It was no match for six men with ARs. Were the FEMA men expecting trouble from the people in line, a la Ohio? Or were they expecting hoodlums to rush the truck in an effort to steal the supplies? Both prospects made Martin uncomfortable. If shooting did break out at the general store, would it matter who started it? The question was what to do about it. He had no doubt that many of the people in line were quietly carrying something like he was with his little revolver. If trouble did break out, he and his family could quickly find themselves in a crossfire like the radio announcer did. He scanned the area, looking for the nearest available cover and exit routes. An empty parking lot was a very exposed position. He imagined that he would push Margaret toward the corner of the store at the first spark of trouble. The wooden clabbered building wasn't great cover, but better than nothing. He would try to quickly assess the size and direction of the threat. They could back away behind the red house, which way from there would depend on the threats. Uh, just keep a sharp eye open, Martin said quietly to Dustin. For now, everyone in the line was behaving. Quinn and his men were not menacing. Things in Ohio went wrong, but that didn't mean the whole country was about to erupt into gunfire. Surely cooler heads could prevail. Quinn rode the lift gate back up to the back of the trailer. With a bullhorn, he addressed the crowd. Good citizens, we bring you help. Quinn paused to allow for cheering. Only Candace's voice could be heard in the back, thanking him. Quinn continued without the air of Santa. Do not rush up to the truck. There is enough for everyone. We will not tolerate any unruliness. Stay in a single file line. Wait behind the yellow stanchion there until called over to the truck by Mr. Zachary here. Then come up to the lift gate where you will be given a box. One box per person. No exceptions. There will be no collecting of extra boxes for people not present. One box per person present. Once you have your box, move away quickly to the right here. No one will be allowed to congregate around the vehicles. I trust I have made myself clear. Okay, let's get started. Quinn pointed to the slender man in black with a clipboard, evidently Mr. Zachary. Zachary pointed to the man in a brown overcoat at the head of the line. The man walked up to the lift gate apprehensively, unsure if going first was necessarily a good thing. Two black-clad arms thrust a box out from within the trailer. The FEMA man, behind Quinn, took it and held it out and dropped it to the man. The man in the brown overcoat caught the box, about the size that a pair of work boots would come in. He looked lost for where to go for a few steps, then walked briskly to the road. His wife got her box and followed him down the road. The process got faster after the first several people. 
Satisfied that his supervisory presence was no longer necessary on the lift gate, Quinn had one of his men lower him to the ground. He paced a few steps along the line, arms behind his back, studying the people as a rancher might study cattle at an auction. He cut through the line to continue studying people from the other side. He made his way across the highway to the town hall. While he kept inching forward in line, Martin could see all three selectmen on the front steps. Quinn strode up to them with what appeared to be a friendly greeting. The four of them stood and talked. It was Martin's turn to step forward. The man on the lift gate dropped a box into his arms. It wasn't heavy, perhaps less than ten pounds. Martin moved to the edge of the road to wait for Margaret, Dustin, and Judy to get their boxes. Meanwhile, he could see that the discussion between Quinn and the selectman wasn't going well. Quinn pointed in various directions, stabbing the air with his finger, pounding his fist in his hand. Lander shook his head. No discernible words made it across the highway, but Quinn's raised voice was clearly angry. Wilder was getting visibly angry, too. He was making stabbing motions of his own. Landers and Haddock acted as reluctant peacemakers, but Landers kept shaking his head. "'I wonder what's in these boxes?' Margaret turned her box over and over as she joined him beside the road. "'There's no printed contents. I'm half-tempted to open it up and see.' "'Can't be too much in here,' said Dustin. He tossed his box up a few inches. "'At least it won't be too heavy in the arms for the walk home.' "'What do we do now?' asked Judy. Are, "'Are we waiting for Ruby?' Susan and Ruby were still twenty yards back in line, and yet the line extended for a hundred yards after them. "'Don't wait for us,' Martin said. "'I'd rather you go home as soon as possible, keep the fire stoked, and keep an eye on things. We'll be along later.' Oh, and Dustin, you did bring the tool with you, right? Dustin looked confused for a moment, then deciphered Martin's code word. He smiled and patted his coat pocket. Oh, good, good. Don't want to take any chances with hungry hooligans while you're carrying boxes of food. The scene on the steps of Town Hall had gotten hotter. Landers and Haddock were physically restraining Wilder. Quinn's voice was raised. His gestures were that of body-slamming an invisible wrestling foe. Quinn finally stomped back to the truck. He barked a few orders to his men, who looked puzzled and unsure what to do. Quinn climbed the lift gate, pulled the man out of the trailer, and then yanked down the trailer's overhead door. He ordered his men back to their Suburban. He hopped down, ordering Zachary and another man into the Escalade. People in line called out to ask what was going on but Quinn didn't answer. Their questions became shouts, but Quinn was inside, behind black glass. The Escalade backed out of the parking lot with no regard for the people standing in line. They all scattered. The driver gunned the engine as he pulled around the truck and down the hill. The Suburban followed. The big freight liner rumbled to a start, belched a big ball of black smoke, and with that, Atlantis sank back into the sea. What was that all about? Red Colliff asked Landers. Why did they up and leave? Someone said the truck wasn't even half empty. The big man said there'd be one for everyone. Martin stood nearby, waiting for Susan and Ruby. It's a long story, Red, and this ain't really the place for it. Aw, oh, come on, Jeff, just give me a clue. We stood in this dang line for over an hour and didn't even get one of them boxes. Certainly you can give me something. 
Okay, suffice it to say that we did not make Mr. Quinn very happy. He expected that we'd have done a bunch of stuff, and we didn't do it. So, as you can see, he decided to take his ball and go home. What did he ask you to do? asked Barbara. It's complicated, and I surely shouldn't be talking about it just yet. We need some time to figure things out. And Wilder needs some time to cool off, quipped Red. He still looks hopping mad. Yeah, well, we're all a little upset. Landers turned to the line of people. In a loud voice, he addressed the gathering crowd. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but it seems the FEMA people have decided to stop handing out supply boxes a bit sooner than we would have liked. A dozen questions all burst out at once. Landers tried to abate the storm with his arms. We'll explain what we can later, but this isn't the time or the place. I'm sorry, everyone. Please return to your home. Don't stay out here in the cold. As Landers walked past Martin, Martin asked quietly, Did this have something to do with that instruction pack that Quinn dropped off for you Monday? Landers only nodded as he continued on his way back to town hall. Yeah, "'What's going on?' asked Ruby. "'Where's the truck? I saw it there a while back.' "'They decided to leave,' Martin said. "'Before everyone got a box, but I didn't get a box.' "'A lot of people didn't get boxes, Ruby,' said Susan. "'Well, it's just not fair, I tell you,' Ruby shook her fist. "'I walked a long ways, longer than I've walked in a long time. My feet are tired, so are my legs.' They made an old woman walk all that way just to leave her with nothing. Ruby was building up a head of steam. Come on, Ruby. We'll all walk you home. Martin handed Margaret his box and took Ruby by the arm. Doesn't this remind you of that time you walked all the way up to Walmart because they sold you the wrong shampoo? I don't know what they were thinking. They weren't thinking, that's what. My therapeutics always comes in a blue bottle. Always has. I clearly asked for my usual therapeutics. Out of the side of his mouth, Martin whispered to Margaret, This story always gets her going. She might not even notice the walk back home. He smiled. You're a stinker, Margaret said with a little smile. Didn't you look in the bag before you left the store? asked Susan holding Ruby's other arm. "'I never had to look in a bag before,' ranted Ruby. "'It's always been in a blue bottle. No need to look.' "'Supper will be ready soon,' Margaret announced. "'Dustin, I'll give you a roll-up that you can eat while you're on your watch. Martin, you're going to have to clear your project off the table now.' "'Uh, yeah, okay, almost done with this stage.' Martin didn't look up. His attention was focused on the small wires held near the oil lamp for better light. He took his soldering iron from a pan of glowing coals and touched it to the twisted wires. A thin line of smoke curled up. Ah, uh, there. I can tack these to a board or something tomorrow, he began gathering up his mess. Think it'll work? Dustin asked. He pulled the sweatshirt hood over his stocking cap. I hope so. These are the ones that tested okay. And they were built to charge two double A's. I figure eight of them ought to give us enough milliamps to charge four batteries a day. Even if it's a gray day. At least, that's the plan, anyhow. Guess we'll see, eh? See, Mom, being a pack rat isn't always a bad thing, Dustin teased. Margaret rolled her eyes. I would have thrown those old sidewalk lights away long ago, but your father kept moving the box. 
Here you go, Dustin. I rolled up last night's beans and rice, with some cheese this time, into a flatbread roll-up. I put it in this dish towel so it would stay warmer. Sorry about the flatbread. I'm so disappointed my yeast had gone flat. That's okay, Mom. Dustin took the rolled-up towel into his gloved hand. The twenty-two was slung over his shoulder. I'll let Judy know that supper's ready. She's probably really cold by now. Dustin carefully slipped behind the dark blanket over the back door and let himself out. Margaret nodded to Susan, who had been watching Martin Sauter. Go get Ruby. Tell her it's time for supper. Judy came in quietly and hurried over to warm her hands near the wood stove. Brr, it's cold and damp out there this evening. I do wish you'd take something with you, Martin said diplomatically. He knew she was skittish around guns. Her parents had been Massachusetts residents for many years, long enough to absorb that state's gun-phobia. While Judy was born and raised in New Hampshire, the black magic attitude of her parents had left a deep mark. That's okay, Judy said. I had the walkie-talkie. There's nothing going on out there anyway. I'd still feel better if you had something, Martin said. The walker's place isn't that far up the road, and they had trouble with some beggars this morning. Martin decided not to remind Judy that it was Lance's brandishing of his old carbine that sent the beggars back to the highway. He was certain that she would only see it as overselling his point. Judy turned back to warming her hands, as if by breaking eye contact she had hung up the phone on the topic. Martin let it go, for the time being. Susan helped Ruby to the table. Ruby continued to mutter about the color of her shampoo bottles. Margaret gave Martin a look that said, See what you started? This is what you guys missed for supper last night, said Margaret. She scooped a big spoonful of yellow-tinted rice and beans onto a disc of flatbread, sprinkled on some grated cheese, and rolled it up. She handed the first one to Judy. We had that last night, complained Ruby. You just got all those boxes of food. Why can't we have some of that? Actually, Ruby, half of those were beans and rice meals anyhow. Besides, we're trying to make our supplies last. Well, I told you last night that I don't like rice and beans. Ruby pushed her chair back from the table. I think I'll go fix myself something else. Ruby, Margaret said sternly, we can't all go fixing up our own meals. Our supplies won't last long that way. Ah, nonsense, Ruby quipped back. I'll just open a can of soup and pop it in the microwave. Uh, Ruby, the microwave hasn't worked for a week. Martin tried to get Ruby seated again. Power's been out, remember? That's why we have the oil lamp here. I don't care. I'm not eating rice and beans again. I told you I don't like it. I want something else. She raised her voice and resisted Martin's efforts to get her seated. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. Margaret raised her voice to match. This is just how it is. Now, you can either eat your supper or go to bed without. The choice is yours. Margaret had her hands on her hips, a mother that shall not be moved. You can't talk to me like a child, shouted Ruby. I'm not eating your stinking rice and beans. Ruby threw the roll up at Margaret. It hit her in the shoulder, spattering rice up on Margaret's face. Martin cringed. Margaret had very few emotional triggers, but having something spatter on her face was one of them. Dustin and Lindsay had learned that early on, in the high chair. Food thrown at Mom 
brought on a rage that no one wanted to see twice. After a momentary shock, Margaret's eyes flared with a wild fury that Martin was glad he seldom saw. That's it! Just get out of here! I've had all I could take of you! I've had enough of you, old woman! Martin and Susan tried to help Ruby, but she flailed off their attempts. She stomped down the hallway and slammed her door. Margaret stood silent, face red, still in a scowl. She might have been the last combatant standing, but she didn't look victorious. Martin slid Susan's plate toward her. Might be a good thing to have supper in your room, he said quietly. Susan's eyes darted between Margaret and Martin. She took the plate slowly, then hurried down the hall. Judy sat still with wide eyes. I think I'll take mine downstairs. Um, good night. She was gone in a flash. Dustin pushed through the back door. Hey, what's all the noise in here? After looking at Margaret's face, he let out a little, oh, and melted back outside. Martin could see Margaret's arms trembling as she held her white fists on her hips. A rush of emotion was catching up with the rest of her body. I'll, um, just get a rag and clean this up, he said. We, we can't all go fixing our own meals, Margaret announced, to no one in particular. We'll run out of everything faster. People almost always eat more protein than their body requires, she faced Martin, as if he still needed convincing. We'll have to portion out those things. We have to. We, we can't just eat whatever we want. We'll run out in a month. I know, I know, you're right. We can't. He gathered up the plates. She followed him into the kitchen with the oil lamp. Those boxes that we just got today, they only added two days to our supplies. Just two days. Half of it was cheap filler meals like rice and pasta anyhow. They cheaped out on the proteins as it is. Cookies and brownies. Empty carbs. I don't know if it was worth standing in line all afternoon for. Martin poured some warm water into the dishpan. Well, maybe not, but it's better than not getting a box. "'Whatever,' Margaret snatched the dish rag from Martin's hands. "'I'll wash up. You go get some sleep. Your watch is coming up in a few hours.' Martin quietly stepped out of the kitchen. From the overzealous scrubbing the dishes were getting, it was clear she wanted to be left alone for a while. Martin awoke with a cold nose. The bedroom air was chilly. Margaret was huddled at the other side of the bed. The fluffy comforter pulled up over her ear. She was feeling cold, too. One thirty. He realized that he hadn't properly stoked the stove before going to bed. The thrown food incident and the yelling certainly disrupted whatever passed for a normal routine these days. He wrapped his robe around himself to go restoke the fire. His turn for a watch was coming up soon anyhow. With unsteady legs, Martin wobbled down the hallway to the living room. There wasn't any soft orange glow from the wood stove, the living room was solid blackness. The fire had burned down to practically nothing. Working in the dark, more by memory and habit than sight, Martin gathered some kindling from the bucket. He raked around the ashes to find a half-dozen embers. While insufficient to heat the house, he had revived a fire with much less. The teepee of thin kindling over the coals began to smoke. Martin fished in the wood rack, feeling for thinner splits or lighter ones, Pine caught a flame eagerly, even if it didn't last as long. Blowing on the coals a few times had them glowing brightly. The smoky kindling burst into flames. He quickly positioned his lighter sticks on either side. 
in the faint yellow glow, he could see well enough to pick out a few more medium-sized splits. Carefully building up his stack, he continued to push and prod with the poker to keep the burning sticks just the right distance apart. The larger logs were too triangular in section to lay nicely. They kept falling together, choking off the airflow that Martin was trying to build. No, 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 not like that, he said out loud. I put you over there for a reason. Now stay there. Stop falling over. And you too. No twisting. You talk to logs? Came a soft voice behind him. What? Martin spun around, still on his knees. His heart raced. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to scare you, said Susan quickly. In the faint yellow glow, he could see her at the far end of the couch, knees up under a blanket. Martin hadn't seen her there in the darkness. Oh, whoa. Martin tried to control his rapid breathing. Ah, you did give me quite a start. I didn't see you there. Why are you out here? I couldn't sleep, and my room is really cold. Ah, well, I'll have the fire hot pretty soon, and you'll be fine then. Okay, she said softly, as if agreeing to a promise. So, as I was saying, you talk to logs? Oh, ha, uh, yeah, I guess I do. Martin turned back to managing his fire. I like to arrange them carefully, you know, to make sure there's enough airflow between the pieces to get a good long burn, but they like to fall together sometimes and it chokes off the airflow. Combustion needs oxygen, of course, but the pieces can't be too far away from each other either or they won't stay burning. Being close together keeps them going. They share heat with each other. Sustained slow combustion needs just the right mix of fuel, heat, and air. Too much air and they burn too fast. Not enough air, and they mostly just cook off their combustible gases and... Martin stopped. Combustible gases? Who, in their right mind, makes midnight conversation with a woman using words like combustible gases? Sorry, he said. I was rambling. That's okay, she said. I thought it was kind of fascinating. He stared at her skeptically. No, it isn't. It's boring nerd-speak. Not the way you tell it, she said softly. Martin felt a wave of embarrassment wash over him. That wasn't the reaction he usually got when he rambled. People usually said something like, That's okay, I wasn't really listening. On the one hand, he was pleased that his nerd-speak hadn't turned another person into stone. He was even more pleased that it was Susan who wasn't turned to stone. Yet, on the other hand, he felt that he had no business being pleased. It, that door was locked. It shouldn't matter. He sat in his chair, pulled his feet up. The space between the couch and the chair seemed like a safe distance. A change of topic was in order. So why couldn't you sleep? he asked. You have your jar of olives. As soon as he said it, he regretted it. The implication steered him right back into his cold wave. They didn't help this time she said quietly. But this is much better. Ah, yeah, well, uh, why couldn't you sleep? Supper, she said. I've never been around when someone got so upset that they threw food or, or yelled or, or anything. Really? You fell asleep during a shootout, Martin gently teased. That was different, she looked down and twirled her hair. I mean, this was different. I've been sort of like Ruby's caretaker the last few days. Sure, she's a bit fussy sometimes, but deep down she's okay. And it's been kind of nice to have someone to take care of. It made me feel useful. 
Well, it has helped Margaret that you've been taking care of Ruby. The fire had grown bright. Radiant heat began to fill the room. Ah, there, Martin said, his palms toward the stove. It's kicking out the heat again. Hmm, it does feel better now. Susan stretched, extending her bare legs out from under her blanket. She stretched her arms high over her head to revel in the warmth. The blanket fell to one side. She wore only a T-shirt as pajamas. Martin was momentarily shocked. He had no business looking at her slender legs, but he also realized he was staring at them. "'What are you doing?' he gasped. "'Stretching?' Her eyes were shut tight. Her arms quivered at the apex of her stretch. Martin jumped up and threw the blanket back over her legs. "'You can't do that!' His voice had a hint of desperation. "'Do what?' She sat up, startled. "'Go around like... like that!' He said in a hoarse whisper. He pointed at her legs, safely under the blanket again. "'But this is what I always wear to bed.' She looked down at her T-shirt, sincerely confused. Martin's shoulders slumped as he stepped back. He really didn't need to know that. He shook his head to deny entry to the information. Well, I'd appreciate it if you didn't. Uh, you can't. What I mean is, I'm sure there's some of Lindsay's old pajama pants in the dresser. Nice flannel pajama pants. Susan pulled her knees back up onto the couch. You want me to wear pajama pants? Martin nodded. Yes. Then he suddenly realized what his request sounded like. But uh, it's nothing like that Mark guy, he added hurriedly, telling you that you had to wear socks all the time. No, nothing like that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with your legs at all. You have very nice legs. Oh, whoa, that didn't sound right. Never mind that part. Forget I said that. What I mean is, winter is coming, and the house is going to get colder, and I don't want you to get cold. She studied his eyes for a long pause. Okay, if you want me to, she whispered. I do. Martin collapsed back into his chair. He felt exhausted. The day had had too many stresses. The fire flared brighter as a log fell against the stove door window. The house will be warming up soon. You should go back to bed and, and get some sleep. Okay. She began to toss off the blanket so she could stand up. Martin quickly sat up. No, 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 no. Wrap the blanket around you. Uh, <clears throat> um, so you don't get cold. Susan smiled. Okay, I don't want to get cold. She wrapped the blanket around herself, a velour sarong. Ah, thank you. Martin flopped back into his chair. Susan floated down the hallway, a silent shadow. Martin rubbed his eyes with his palms. Why does life have to get so complicated, and in the middle of the night? What is she doing up? Margaret stood near the wood stove. Martin's eyes flashed open. What? Oh, man, is everyone out to startle me? Huh? I woke up because the house was cold. I came out to throw a couple of logs on, and she was out here because her room was cold, but I didn't see her in the dark. Startled the snot out of me. You guys talking is what woke me up, Margaret said. What were you talking about? Martin sank into his chair. He knew that bare legs was the last topic to mention, if ever. After all, it was now just water under the bridge. Susan would be wearing nice, safe, conservative pajama pants from now on. No need to even bring it up. She said she couldn't sleep because of, well, when Ruby got all upset, I think it upset her. Me too, said Margaret, as she sat on the couch. I really shouldn't have yelled at Ruby. 
I just lost it for a moment. But we can't just eat whatever we want. I already agreed with you. It's not like I can talk about not losing our cool. I just did that with Judy. But we're all under stress, having to adapt to each other, a full house, and having to do without a lot of the things that we're used to. That said, we can't let this turn us into a bunch of angry brawlers. We need each other. Margaret's face showed skepticism. Even Ruby? I know, I know. She hasn't been much help for anything right now, but maybe she will. After all, she grew up poor in Maine all those years. She probably knows some tips and tricks that we could use. We just have to keep her focused on those memories and not her usual story cycle of catching frogs for toys or shampoo bottles or never got ice cream and such. Margaret resigned with a sigh. I know you're right, but I just don't know if I have it in me. Well, tomorrow's a new day, as they say. Let's all try to start over tomorrow. Margaret sighed again. Oh, okay, I'll try. Are you coming back to bed? No, my turn is coming up soon. I'm sure Dustin is cold and tired. Margaret walked back down the dark hallway. Martin set the nine millimeter on the table and started pulling on his insulated coveralls. It seems tempers are wearing thin at the Simmons household, and they're only a week and a half into the outage. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I want to give a special shout out to Chrissy, the newest member and supporter over at buymeacoffee.com slash Mick Rowland.